welcome back to saints and witches i'm sarah i'm catholic i'm liz i'm a witch and we're back at it with more stories about saints and witches well i don't have a story about a saint this time i have stories about witch hunters this time so okay like last time with the weird um devil's penis Uh, obsessions yeah (laughs) (laughs) i like it I feel like we're going to have uh, like weirdos in common today. There's a lot of weirdos to go around in my story. Um, so I love, I love a good weirdo episode. Yes, I love just like an unhinged, psychotic man. Not in real life. Never let him know your next move. <laughs> right. Not in real life. Um, don't no. care for those so much. <laughs> I do not like walking red flags. <laughs> no. But in history, I just find them so funny. They are a blast in history. So what's but, new? Uh, nothing. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't think I have anything either. Except I, I bought I've some. Done anything? Yeah, I bought some What'd plants. You do? You bought plants. Yeah, that's pretty that's much good. it. I'm waiting for the month to end so I can start spending money. I would, yep. I would like access to uh, my June budget. Do you do a budget? Like, do you sit down and like budget every like, I have month? An app. Or... I have a budget. Hmm. And it's connected to my bank accounts and everything. And I religiously hold myself to it. See, I do absolutely none of that. <laughs> and then I am like sometimes like legitimately out of money (laughs) so (laughs) um (laughs) maybe I should like try it your way my way is the only way that I don't like one when I manic spend like crazy and Mm. fuck myself over (laughs) I can't talk some sense into myself um and two that I don't just kind of like out of sight out of mind despair about things it's kind of how I am with like expiration dates in my fridge that I just assume everything's bad so like I don't check on it and I just let it sit there and go bad if I didn't budget I would just assume that I've gone over budget so I may as well just keep spending money I've already ruined it for myself yeah yeah I just participate in little treat culture (laughs) where I give myself a little treat every single day and then wonder why I have no money yeah (laughs) I I give myself treats but uh like if you want this you can't have this Mm. later you want these three things today but if you buy this thing you can't have the other two so pick which of the three things you want yeah that makes sense that's kind of how I keep my spending down it's like oh you you want to go like eat out for dinner tonight um then you can't um buy lunch or yeah you have to pack your lunch for work yeah that makes sense and it's like well I'm too lazy to pack my lunch for work and it's like then you don't get to go out and eat after work so suck it the fuck up Mm -hmm. you're right you're right (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny do you never mind I don't want to get into that because it I know that it will end up being like a super long conversation and I am interested in your answer but like I could talk about it for hours and I would so let's not (laughs) I was just gonna ask very simply because now I've like built it up like when you're talking in your mind like to yourself do you use I you or we most often it depends 
entirely what the subject is. Fascinating. Um, if I'm being like uh, telling myself what to do or being like very rude to myself, mm. it's like you. You. Um, if I'm being encouraging, it's usually we, we. need to do this. Um, and the, the I don't really know when the I comes in. I think it's kind of when I'm being confident. Like I'm so fucking funny. That was a funny joke. Okay. Um, I see. Like I pretty much always say we. Yeah. And I told that to Chris one time, and he was like, "Oh, that's because you have completely different personalities when you're alone versus when you're with other people, and you change your personality with every single person that you talk to." And I was like, okay, please don't <laughs> ever say that again. <laughs> I have Just different personalities too, definitely. <laughs> but I think it's probably because I'm like bipolar and grew up with depression that I view like my body and myself as very separate entities. Mm. Um, and so it's very, you know, you need to get out of bed, you sack of meat. You're not, <laughs> you're not doing your job. Yeah. We got to go to work, you know, mm-hmm. soul and body. Right. Yeah. Go do that. You and me. You, yeah. You need to brush your teeth because we, we need to go to work. Right. Body is you. Soul is I. Together and, they're we. Yeah. Collectively we're we. <laughs> Okay, we agree. Now we can move okay. on. Now we can start the show. Now I feel comfortable. <laughs> now that this has become a safe space. Right, like for us, for all of us. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to dive right in today. I'm in early to mid-1600s England. Uh, The majority of my story is kind of smack dab in the middle of the English Civil War. I'm here to talk witch-pricking, con artistry, and devilish imps, um, and how two men, Matthew Hopkins and John Stern, were involved in the deaths of nearly 300 people in just a two-year time span. Oh, Lord. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, We're going to start with uh, Matthew Hopkins, just because he's the more iconic of the duo. Um, he's younger by like 10 years and he comes into the story later. Um, but he definitely like sweeps in like velvet cape, you know, jazz hands, pizzazz takes over everything. So I am picturing Michael Flatley (laughs) from Lord of the Dance. (laughs) As you should. Um, yeah. So Hopkins father was a Puritan minister he has sons James, John, and Thomas, and then he finally has Matthew. Uh, so these are very good biblical names. Uh, Matthew mm-hmm. is born sometime in the 1620s. We don't know when, we just know uh, not before 1619. Um, And it's important to understand uh, the world Matthew grows up in because it definitely contributes to the kind of person that he becomes. His his family is rather wealthy by some accounts and has connections, uh, so he does have a degree of privilege. Um, But he's also either the youngest of four or the fourth of six kids. 
they got okay. both. Uh, so you can imagine, um, like, he has any success of his father or his elder siblings hanging over his head at, like, any time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also imagine the sort of influence growing up in a puritanical household with a minister for a father might have. Um, the sermons definitely don't stop at the church door. Mm. Um, I like to imagine they just had like those embroidered pillows all over the place and, right. uh, you know, um, lots of families where I'm from have the Bible quotes like painted on the walls in mm-hmm. every single room. Stenciled on. Yeah. Yes. Live, laugh, love. I, I see that, but they're like Leviticus. oh my god thou shalt not lie with a woman (laughs) during her menstrual period yeah in the dining room in the dining room yeah yeah delish (laughs) that's what I imagine (laughs) um and all their points out that because of the family's wealth they would have had wet nurses nanny etc and it's like that these people would have introduced like common town superstitions or folklore to the kids' lives. So they would have had that like juxtaposed with the, you know, puritanical teachings of their father. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing to consider is that this is the period of time in which England is very turbulent. Um, it's been changing religions back and forth um, over like the last couple of decades. Who's top dog is forever shifting. Um, I'm pretty sure I forget to mention this later. Um, So I wrote that, you know, I would just go ahead and mention it now. Um, I wrote this all out of order. So (laughs) it probably doesn't make no sense. Mm -hmm. Um, There are campaigns where men go around demolishing religious iconography in towns because it's seen as idolatry. One quote being, idolatry is the principal crime of mankind, the greatest guilt of the world, the total cause of judgment. Um, Written by a man who lumps stained glass, altars, and crucifixes right in with astrology, magic, and witchcraft. So Mm. these roots that men take to rampage through towns and destroy churches almost exactly match routes that Hopkins and Stern later take because these towns are full of tension and they're very easy targets okay other things to keep in mind about england uh james the first has recently been king um and we've heavily established on this show his views on witchcraft his book demonology would be circulating at this point still uh witchcraft trials have spiked in england in hopkins childhood and young adulthood and now there is a civil war and we know that that war always results in scapegoating. You have disease, death, famine, so on and so forth. Um, war is also removing men from households and from communities. They're all fighting. Um, and so men not being in the households is not unlike what we saw with labor, with whaling. Um, it's leaving women unattended. And we know how dangerous it is to leave women unattended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will. I mean, it kind of is a little dangerous for me personally, but that's my own problem. I know. <laughs> you never know what, what women are going to get up to. Women alone. Women be shopping. <laughs> women be inviting the devil into their homes and their souls. You know, it's, uh, you know, that shopping to marrying the devil pipeline. <laughs> Boy, am I on it. i'm deep into it (laughs) all of these things result in matthew hopkins a 20 something man 
the the point in the story in which we're kind of dropping in. Um, you know, he's now living in Manning Tree and I think it's Essex. I did not fact check that. That's just what I remember off the top mm-hmm. of my head. Um, it's after his father's death. He has a pretty nice inheritance. Um, some articles will say that he's impoverished, um, but I distinctly remember them mentioning some form of inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying to make it as a lawyer or an inn owner, depending on the source. Um, it varies. Okay. We don't have we don't have a ton of records on him. Most of what we do know about him is people just taking things and then making educated guesses based off of what we have. Yeah. Um, so it's very easy for people to disagree. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew is ambitious. He's superstitious. His worldview can be harsh, very black and white. Um, He's definitely out to make his mark. Um, He's kind of stumbled into like the perfect opportunity. Manning Tree is like embroiled in witch hysteria at this point. Uh, The war isn't going well. There's so much infighting in the country. Life is bleak. You know, my cow died. It's the straw that broke the camel's back for me with all this going on. I can't fix any of it, but by God, I can try to fix this. Right. Yep. So lots of women are targeted as witches in this area over the years, Um, but I'm just going to focus on three of them. A woman named Anne West, who was accused several times um, and was acquitted. Her daughter, Rebecca West, who's, um, who Anne's accuser said was looking at them hatefully for accusing her mother. Mm, I um, mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Rebecca was later blamed for making the wife of the accusing family suffer a miscarriage after leaving church. Right, right. Um, and it's this whole scene of like, she stumbles out of the church and down the road and like gives birth in the street mm. to a stillborn so, oh my god I love that I mean it's the whole thing it sucks but I love it yes um and then the last which I'll bring up is one-legged widow uh <laughs> Elizabeth Clark love her best Clark yeah she's been implicated in a number of things including a child's death um and uh, some important man's wife is currently sick. And he's just like banking on her being implicated, hoping like his wife gets better. Right. Uh, when confronted, Elizabeth does confess, but she doesn't name any names of who she's associated with. This confession is entrusted to a man named John Stern. Um, a Puritan in the area who has the ear of some pretty powerful people. He's pretty well connected. He takes this confession to the authorities and he does leave with a warrant to search whoever he wants. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Though this warrant is supposed to be used to interrogate Bess to get her associates' names from her. Mm-hmm. Hopkins volunteers to assist Stern in this endeavor because he and Stern are like similarly ambitious. They're similarly puritanical. Um, And also because Hopkins claims that he's heard the voices of witches floating over the fields near his house for weeks now. And he's been putting his ear to the window of his bedroom. He's been eavesdropping on those conversations. (laughs) Uh, he claims that he's had a bear spirit sicked on him for his troubles, uh, but God protected him. Oh, thank God. Yeah, thank God. Um, <laughs> also, he definitely heard the witches at one point say Elizabeth Clark's name. Oh, that's clear. Uh-huh. 
he doesn't really have any other specifics but he definitely mm-hmm. heard her name okay um and an author notes that he likely stole the bear story from stories circulating in other pamphlets at the time because of there course. are similar stories in other pamphlets nothing um, original with these men no <laughs> plagiarizing anything making it their hands on stitching mm-hmm. it together mm-hmm. would like to take some of their things and run it through like turn it in <laughs> turn it in <laughs> it's like 89 percent plagiarized <laughs> from a, like a bunch of different propaganda pamphlets yeah they just changed some names and some details the devil's penis is short instead of long <laughs> <laughs> made of horn instead of metal or something yeah um hopkins and stern aren't the only people working with these witches to elicit confessions witches are kept awake for very long periods of time watched by community members called watchers um who ins- who ensure witches are kept awake Hopkins and Stern also travel with women in their party because they don't look for devil's marks on women only men um they're they're hmm. not gonna like strip a woman naked and like look at her oh naked. so they have women along to do that yeah okay um that isn't to say that the women are nice about it they do forcefully strip some of the witches and shave them oh my god um yeah so like the women are not the heroes of this story they are going around with these douchebags um and there's always participating those... in this there's always those um those pick me's those serena janes that yeah. think they because they help the male oppressors that they're gonna be spared yeah and you know they're getting to tour the countryside and make money at the same time so mm-hmm. they're going around waxing people's coochies i actually wouldn't mind <laughs> <laughs> if someone just like did that for free like while also being traumatized might as well mm-hmm. like get that done but i digress you can <laughs> cut that <laughs> you can die like nice clean shaven <laughs> right for the grave you know yes you never know what but ghosts you're gonna meet what a nice afterlife. a nice two after the grave <laughs> exactly <laughs> so weird um yeah so the reason hopkins and stern gain the reputation that they do uh, is that they essentially will take questioning further than authorities or community members will. Uh, torture is readily admitted to within like their writing, not within like when they're later questioned by authorities if they're mm-hmm. doing this. Um, and Hopkins does endorse swimming witches, uh, that is tying them to chairs and drowning them. Uh, mostly because King James has recently endorsed these things in demonology, mm-hmm. both torturing witches and swimming witches. Yeah. Anyway, it is the 24th of March, 1645, and Elizabeth Clark has been kept awake for three days now. Um, she is admitted kind of really to nothing at this point, like they're not getting what they want out of her um she also hasn't been visited by her familiars which is another thing watching witches is meant to expose because familiars need to feed from um witches at some point Mm -hmm. um so if you watch them for a very long period of time you're going to catch that um everyone is getting tired by this third day until in strolls stern and hawkins who apparently Hopkins has this greyhound with him at all times, just like a 
fucking weirdo. Yeah. That's extra. That is, that's narcissistic behavior. I told you when I said like the velvet cape and like the mm-hmm. jazzies and stuff, mm-hmm. the greyhound. The greyhound. You can see why he starts yeah. to become the more iconic of the duo. Yeah. I'm getting the full picture. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> also imagine like the lace kind of puritanical collars and everything, the haircut. The wig, yes. The huge like full curly wig. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. there. I see it all. Mm-hmm. The text says they demand best confess, but they get nowhere. So they just decide that they're going to leave and they're going to come back the next day. But randomly as soon as they get to the door she just decides to blurt out like hey do you guys want to see my imps um imps familiar okay i'm gonna use these words interchangeably because the texts do too okay um and to this i'm gonna kind of call bullshit because you know three days of being awake and then she gives in to these guys but the story is that like she just blurts it out like as they're leaving like they didn't do anything they just hmm. approached the door and she's like uh do, do you want to see everything know everything right why would she say that as they were leaving exactly to these men who admit there's nothing wrong with torture to it like you're trying to convince me that they didn't do anything right yeah they they did something that pushed her over the edge she was already like going crazy from being kept awake for 72 hours but then like something exactly they have to have done something different or she would have like blurted this out to any of the people in the last three days Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so I just called bs um anyway Bess has the men sit down um and as they wait for the imps familiars to show up uh they ask her if she's had sex with the devil she high key accuses them of being nosy little fucking creeps Mm. like why why do you want to know it's nobody's Um, business exactly to which they're like uh I just want to know because I need to know the truth like there's no other reason um (laughs) So she then relays the details of her sex life with the devil, saying that the devil is a proper man than her questioners and satisfies her half the night. So I feel like she was definitely getting like a dig in at them. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I'll tell you one thing. This dig is way bigger than yours. He's just so much more fucking hand. Literally at one point, they're like, if you could sleep with like anybody, who would you choose? And she goes, eh, the devil. Why were they asking her that? <laughs> exactly. Why? What are we doing? What? If they're be- like, if they're being that weird, like at that point, it just feels like she's making fun of them. No, she 100% is. And I love her for that. Exactly. These little weirdos and their collars and their buckle shoes. Right. And And they're so horny. They're so sexually repressed and frustrated. Yeah. This is what comes "Uh, out of it. I would rather fuck the devil. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Once you've had the best, you don't need to try the rest. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. She's a character for sure. Um, eventually her imps appear in the room. Um, there is a white cat named Holt, a dog with no legs named Jermara, a greyhound with stag legs named Vinegar Tom, who also <laughs> turns into a headless four-year-old child, which is Absolutely creepy. Not. 
And he just like walks circles around the house. Nope. No. Hard veto. <laughs> okay, wait. What is it? A greyhound body. Stag legs. Stag legs. Who's named Vinegar Tom. Vinegar Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes he turns into a headless four-year-old and walks around the house. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm. that is horror movie <laughs> material how okay yeah okay sure <laughs> i don't know what mind dreamt that up but a mind that hasn't been asleep for three days <laughs> i imagine she's a just, mind that needs a little bit of help she's just seeing shit at this point she was the og stephen king so <laughs> okay yeah there is also a polecat named News, a toad, a black rabbit named Sack and Sugar, who best swears will crawl down your throat and lay frogs in your stomach. Nifty. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know what form they take, but other familiars that are named are Elamanzer, Pie Whacket, Peck in the Crown, Grizzle, and Greedy Gut. <laughs> These all sound like weird names for like old names for illnesses. Yes. Like, oh, sorry, I got greedy gut. <laughs> like, I, I won't make the the mead festival or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I think Vinegar Tom's still my favorite. Vinegar Tom is definitely my favorite, but I did know um, Pie Wacket just because there's a movie by that name. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, I suggest people watch. It's a horror movie that. Uh, it's been a couple years since I watched it, but I think this girl essentially like accidentally invokes this spirit, demon, whatever it is in the movie um, and tries to get it to like kill somebody, mm. maybe her mom, and then immediately like regrets it, but she can't make it stop. Hmm. Is it spelled like? P-Y-E-W-A-C-K-E-T. Okay. Hmm. Piwacket. Okay. Um, to skip over some things, uh, because it's obvious where things are headed at this point, Anne and Rebecca West are implicated, um, you know, all of this, what I just named counts as pretty solid proof against Bess Clark that she's a witch. Um, all of this is going to ignite further accusations. People are going to name other people. It's all going to weave together into this giant story and so on and so forth. We've seen this a million times. Um, Hopkins cites this pretty much as the beginning of his experience as a witch finder. Um, and he is called on his experience. They're like, well, what the fuck makes you qualified to like find witches? And he's like, I may not be a smart man. Who <laughs> Just stop there. Things. Stop there, Matt. Stop there. <laughs> like, I've never read a book in my life. But yeah, we know. <laughs> But I was involved in a witch trial once, um, and that's that was it. That was all I needed. I not book smarts, but street smarts. Okay, buddy. Okay, buddy. For sure, you're hired. It was that confidence, and he literally says that they're like, "What's your experience?" He's like, "Uh, I don't need any book." <laughs> oh my god. He sounds I like got a... my learning in the field. Read my resume. <laughs> right. My resume, which is attached. Um, it's written in crayon. Um, he sounds like a Republican lawmaker today. <laughs> <laughs> Not I, qualified. I, 
I called him a politician at one point and then I erased it um, because that's how he answers questions is by not answering questions. Well, I was there in your brain. Yes, you were. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, from here, more or less Stern and Hopkins began touring the countryside as witch finders or witch prickers. Um, Hopkins somewhere in here dubs himself witch finder general oh god uh, which is a totally made up title mm -hmm. uh, super pretentious um, mm -hmm. and this you've seen good omens is um, a title that they do use in the book show right um, this is where it comes from Matthew Hopkins nice Mm -hmm. um, a reminder that witch finders or witch prickers are people who root out witches in areas, especially by pricking their bodies with needles and or knives to find areas of insensitivity known as devil's marks or paps or teats, uh, where the devil and uh, familiars and imps uh, suck blood from the witch for, for sustenance. Mm -hmm. um, I glossed straight over that earlier. Like I said, I wrote this completely <laughs> out of order. Um, I did talk about one witch pricker. I think it was on our Scottish episode with Isabel Cody. His name was John Kincaid. Um, he was also like a total con man. Yeah, I remember um, him. And he was like, eventually, wasn't he like found out for like being a con man eventually? Mm -hmm. And he was interesting in the fact that, and this did happen in some cases, uh, like women would hire a witch pricker to prick them to prove that they weren't witches. Right. It was kind of like, that reminds me of like blood spatter analysts in mm -hmm. crimes. There, we now know that that's mostly bullshit, but for decades, it was admissible as evidence and accepted. Yeah. Scary. Um, actually. Hopkins and Stern are going to stumble into areas already rife with witchcraft allegations. It's not like they're going to areas and then they're stirring like everything up from like nothing. Mm -hmm. um, like things are already being thrown around. Like I said, targeting areas where like churches have been attacked, people are attacking other these places are like just full of like shit has been going down for a while. It's been hitting mm -hmm. the fan and they're like, this is perfect. Let's go <laughs> right. here. Because they have to kind of be invited into these areas. They're not just going to show up. And so these towns that are just like fighting amongst themselves and they just want like a scapegoat so all of this will calm down. Of course, they're going to like reach out to these guys and mm -hmm. like, we've got the solution to like all of your problems. Right. Um, so they're going to stumble into areas that already have these allegations flying around um, or they're going to make situations much, much worse. Um, because like their arrival being heralded like oh these guys are like you know 10 miles that away they're kind of in our general area um, it's gonna stir up like really old grudges like mm -hmm. you know Geraldine I've been low-key accusing you of being a witch since you looked at me funny like 12 years ago and I got like hay fever that one time <laughs> um, witch finders are like a town over I hear they're kind of coming our direction. If you go submit yourself to them, or even if I give them your name, we can prove your innocence or your guilt, like mm -hmm. definitively once and for all. Mm, dangerous game. Yeah. So sometimes it's very fresh things that they were dealing with. Sometimes it's people are like, yeah, this literally happened like, I don't know, 17 years ago. I just, I feel like we should uh, clear the air oh right now. Oh God, just dredge all that shit up. That's awful. Yeah, which is one of the reasons that like the execution count is so high. 
Yeah, um, what'd you say, 300? Yes. Oh my God, that is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, Hopkins and Stern do split up and cover the countryside separately, pretty much to cover more ground. Uh-huh. Um, and this is information. Uh, um, most of the stuff that I read made it seem as though these people were like a pair they went like everywhere together and they were inseparable mm-hmm. um but them traveling separately is information that i'm pulling from a book called Witchfinders: a 17th century english tragedy by malcolm gaskill mm-hmm. um most of my information today is coming from his book but i also have some information coming from online articles hopkins own book which i'll talk about later and then also a youtube video and i say youtube video and don't give like the name because there's literally only one youtube video <laughs> well there you go the youtube you'll video. find it <laughs> yeah <laughs> um there is absolutely no way for me to cover every single place in which these men visited or accused even the men themselves were like yeah we gotta cut some stuff um because there's just too much like it would fill volumes Um, which if you read Gaskill's book, um, which is like 400 pages long, and I plowed through 200 pages of it last night, so I didn't really sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, You get a sense of how interconnected some of these trials are, like all of the town drama that feeds together and stretches back years, how many events and like people it involves. Um, And we just said like hundreds of people are in jail inside two years um a couple dozen men and hundreds of women um hopkins and stern are going to testify at these trials a majority of these people that they draw confessions from are going to be executed um like this is just so many people Mm -hmm. and all these people have such big stories they're like we can't we can't talk about all it's just too much um and it's kind of the same way for me that's like it's just too much information for Mm -hmm. me to cover there are too many trials and within the trials there might be like 150 people 28 of which were executed I can't go through 28 people's stories yeah so I may come back to some of these individual trials in the because a lot of them are like super interesting Mm -hmm. and some of these places do have like this was a trial sparked by like Hopkins and Stern but they also had trials like four years before that or Mm -hmm. whatever and they all kind of go together anyway okay all that's really important all that I really want you to kind of take away from this is that um, nearly every story that these guys extract is identical um, we've seen this time and time again, similarities mm-hmm. across accounts collected either in an area or by a witch hunter, um, either because the account details are widely circulated within the area and copied, um, or because the witch hunter is pressing for the same details and not admitting to asking leading questions, or it could be both. Hopkins and Stern gather so many stories about millions. We've, we've been here for what? over two years at this point doing this mm-hmm. this podcast I don't bring up familiars all that often do I no no I mean sometimes there are animals but they're usually not technically familiars they just like every, happen yeah. to be around almost every single account out of like 300 accounts has 
familiars. These Mm -hmm. people have multiple familiars. They all have devil's marks. They're all nursing familiars. It's like, how did you manage to find 300 people who all have familiars when I've been doing this for two years and it's not super common? I'm suspicious of his relationship with that greyhound. (laughs) I'm suspicious of like what he allows that greyhound to do to his body if you know what I'm referring to because like he's asking like oh where does the where does your familiar like suckle on your body Mm -hmm. like let me try and find that why is he so obsessed with that there's that but I'm gonna kind of get into it in the next couple of paragraphs (laughs) no you're fine but like how weird that in particular is Mm -hmm. um so Hopkins and Stern gather so many stories about familiars. It's a ridiculous amount of stories of people saying that they have multiple familiars that they got from a buddy. Everyone is literally trading them amongst themselves like baseball cards or Tamagotchis. It's really weird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. These familiars or imps suckle nipples or suckle teats um, that have grown almost exclusively in the genital region which is weird because devil's marks can be anywhere. And in almost every account for them, they're always in the genital region. Hmm. Um, And in this case, they are found uh, by like the females in the party for women. They're found by um, Hopkins and Stern in the case of men. So, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not getting handsy with women. Um, Most of the women who stand accused have also married the devil and have slept with him. Stories reflecting each other and the devil being cold. He's heavy. They feel his cloven feet in bed. Um, We've talked about the devil being cold and why pretty extensively, uh, especially in like the last episode. Um, Mm -hmm. Gaskill brings up kind of an interesting point that heat is associated with like masculinity in men because like a bodily humor. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was kind of noteworthy because I've never thought the devil of, as like something feminine, even though devil worship is traditionally feminine. Right. Like I never took it like that far in my head. Yeah. I think it's just a, like the devil doesn't neatly fit into a category. Like we don't mm-hmm. know, we don't know what to do with him because like, yeah, back then and still now we do think of like masculinity as like a good thing like culturally like a creative productive like thing like essence but the devil is the opposite of that so like what category is it in Mm -hmm. so like having him be a man but also cold is just like oh that's scary unnatural bad news I don't Mm -hmm. know yeah it's, it's just really interesting to think about um where he fits and why he doesn't fit um Another thing Gaskell notes is that in some cases, our witch finders accounts do differ from the accounts of other authorities that are present, um, that they are very clearly changing details to match other accounts that they've recorded for consistency's sake. Um, and to leap back to familiars, um, as with Elizabeth Clark, pretty much all of the familiars have names. Um, and it's so obvious that they are made up in a lot of cases because some are like the frog familiar named frog or (laughs) 
John's familiar, also named John. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> These people were not great at being questioned on the spot. Like, it very much reminds me of that trope in movies and shows where someone gets asked their name and they, like, look around the room and use things to, like, make mm-hmm. up a fake name. Yep. These people did that, but they were horrendous at it. Right. <laughs> Almost as bad as Guy Fox calling himself John Johnson. John Johnson. <laughs> he tried. Almost that bad. No, he did his best, and that's the issue. <laughs> what an absolute himbo. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> Pretty much. Um Anyway, like in the Labor episode, Gasco points out these preoccupations with imps and sleeping with the devil being like clearly fantasies on the part of the witch finders, um, as they are super fixated on women having their nipples and their genitals sucked on by imps in uh, pretty much every single case, going so far as to describe orgasms um, sometimes. And you mentioned like the weird relationship with dog. It's kind of strange in that they have this preoccupation with women having like their genitals being sucked on. Mm-hmm. It's like, what about that is just so like taboo to you that it like well, consumes all of your thoughts? I mean, wouldn't that be sodomy? Like, wouldn't that be a type of sodomy at that time in history? And they're Puritans. So, like, yeah. They're just so preoccupied with that specifically to the point that right. they talk about like um, it happens while uh, husbands are in bed with their wives and the wives tell like the husbands to ignore the noise and things oh my like God. that. They're like just super fascinated with this like really taboo thing. Right. Yeah. Um, they're also fond of asking if the devil performed nature, which I learned means did the devil get an erection and ejaculate? Mm. Um, of course, most of the women were uncomfortable being asked that by weirdo puritans and lace collars who are torturing them, one of whom has a weird dog that follows him around everywhere. That's fair. So as time goes on, you know, jails packed to the brim pretty much beyond what they can sustain. Um, and eventually authorities are like, mm, you know, maybe we should be exercising some scrutiny here. No perhaps. shit. Um, there are a lot of witches locked up right now and <laughs> pretty much exclusively because of these two weirdos. Yep. Um, who we as a town are quite literally paying like an ass load of money to. Um, Hopkins write that, writes that they are only receiving like this paltry 20 shillings per town and they Mm. usually have to stay a week but keep in mind that this translates to like a grand a week i mean Um, that's pretty good i would say that's a lot of fucking money compared to what like the average laborer makes Mm -hmm. um but he's like it sounds like a lot of money but I've got women traveling with me and I've got multiple horses and we have to eat. And obviously I'm not going to stay in some flea bag motel because I have standards. Um, and after all of that, like a grand a week is hardly any money at all. Like we're breaking even. Oh my God. I hate him. Yeah. To which we all kind of collectively roll our fucking eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Back to the point, some witches that Stern and Hopkins accused are eventually kind of set free, um, though some do die in jail waiting for their acquittal paperwork to process, which really sucks because it takes like months for it to process. And so people just keel over. Oh, my Um, God. Bullshit. Um, This new scrutiny exercised by the judges then develops into full-blown suspicion of Stern and Hopkins. Um, People have had their suspicions for a while of them. Newspapers have called them out over the last two years. Some towns have raised a fuss about the fees um, or like the the legal fees that they racked up in some cases, (laughs) Mm -hmm. to which Hopkins and Stern have been like, all right, we're just gonna not come back to this area again. Um, yeah, we're gonna skedaddle. <laughs> sounds like sounds like con men behavior. Yeah, um, and all of this kind of piles on and piles on. The pair eventually being called before the courts to defend themselves against accusations of witchcraft and torture. So they're being accused of witchcraft, um, <laughs> and they're being asked like, "Did you torture all of these people?" Um, and they're like we're not witches and absolutely we did not torture all of these people that we've admitted to torturing publicly in works that we published no (laughs) (laughs) that was you believe that that was a (laughs) silly joke (laughs) and ask any old witch we didn't torture them you know bring them in the room right now (laughs) the witches are like hi i'm dead (laughs) (laughs) Not one of them will speak against us. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) Oh my God. The logic. Um, Yeah, eventually it just becomes so much that the pair just decide to retire. They're like, hmm, it's been a fun two years, but (laughs) perhaps perhaps it's enough. Um, You know, just put it down on the resume. Uh, It's good. Mm -hmm. I don't know what our next adventure holds. We won't say that we were fired so, right we'll um, just leave we it blank just, yeah we can just delightfully say that we moved on to the next adventure in our lives mm-hmm. um hopkins publishes a book um in like this time of retirement called the discovery of witches um which i prefer to call why matthew hopkins isn't a fraud or a witch by matthew hopkins oh my god <laughs> it's all about like i'm a good baby Yes, it's supposed to be like it's a Q&A and it's supposed to be a Q&A defending like witch finding methods in general, uh-huh. but it's really just Matthew defending himself. Oh my god. Um like I know witches identify other witches most typically, but I'm not one. Or okay. yeah, I torture people, but I'm an honest man. Or I've never asked a leading question in my life. How dare you? Okay, sweetie. And his answers can be so stupid in some cases. Like, I told you politician kind of answering a question without answering a question. The first one is like, people are saying that like, you're a witch because you're just like rooting out a bunch of witches and you're like really good at just like knowing who's a witch. He's like, Uh if Satan's kingdom is divided, how shall it stand? What? That doesn't even make any sense. is essentially saying like if devil worshipers are killing devil worshipers what's the logic oh so he's like why would i find witches if i'm a witch because exactly yeah why why would we be killing each other and then it's like matthew witches accuse witches 
every day you right. torture witches into accusing other witches you right are you dividing satan's kingdom against itself right yeah the, what a dumb whore <laughs> <laughs> the logic is not strong with this dumb whore it's really nice. like everything is like a weird campaign answer he'll just go on like these weird tangents about things and then like vaguely try to answer it in like the last sentence just like mm-hmm. shoehorn it in there after his tangent right um and it's not an answer at all he just slightly got back closer to his point right um but what's most interesting to me about this like tiny work of Hopkins is that the questions sound um, exactly like the questions that we pose, um, which tells me that people were posing very logical questions in the past, like during witch hysteria. Um, so often we think of these people in the past as like these crazy, like superstitious kind of idiots, like how could the public have possibly believed any of this, done this, mm-hmm. executed all of these people. Um, but the pamphlet really opened my eyes to the fact that in like the 1600s, people were very plainly, plainly asking, how do I know you aren't putting words in these women's mouths? How do I know you threatening them doesn't make them lie? If you're keeping them awake and walking them until their feet blister, how do I know the cruelty of that isn't the sole reason they're confessing? Exactly. That's what we were saying last time. They knew that torture confessions were bullshit. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why Matthew's bullshit answers is just so wild because it's so strange to see the questions posed in like this very clear English in like a way that we would ask the question and then just have his weird fanciful like bullshit answer manifest on a tangent yeah and then he poses another perfectly logical question I'm like are you getting these questions from other people because there's no way you wrote this question and wrote this answer there's (laughs) no way this logic and this non-logic came from the same mind he's doing that politician thing where he says one thing for his audience but in private he does a different thing like the senators who will tweet like and gun violence now and then vote for more gun violence (laughs) like yeah he yeah he's a politician yeah so I recommend um reading that work just to see um kind of like that uh, one, the weird like language shift between an answer, but also just to see like those very logical questions being posed like over and over and over again, because um, obviously I'm not touching on all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I found interesting was Matthew's theory on whether the devil has power or not in response to a question about it. Um, this is something that has been deliberated uh, time and time again in history on the show. Um, in his opinion, the devil and witches do not have power at all, but the devil is aware of who is going to die soon of some sort of natural illness. And so he manipulates witches in his thrall to target those people, aware that those people will like naturally keel over soon. Mm. Now the witch and the public are convinced that the witch has killed this person through magic. Okay, I mean, essentially, I know, like, John so and so is going to die of a stroke next Tuesday, mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell Margaret, that she should go look at him funny on Tuesday. And then whoop, he had a stroke, Margaret's magic. I suppose. Yeah, it's like, okay, Matthew, it's interesting. I'll give you that. 
Right. It's not a theory I've heard before. Right. I mean, it's not any less logical than any other of his theories. So yeah, but it's like, (laughs) that does make the devil a little bit clairvoyant, Matthew. Also, it makes like, why would the devil want his followers to be accused of witchcraft? Wouldn't he rather they like fly under the radar? I don't know. He says (laughs) it's all about like convincing the witches that they do have power. Hmm. So okay. that it seems like he then has power. Okay. Um, I get, but the, he does have to have some degree of power to know the future. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the last quote I want to give from the work uh, before I close out my story regards something we've also kind of deliberated on the show before, is, which is being documented as being like stone-faced at their executions. Um, we've kind of talked about it as like a way of, like dehumanizing them Mm -hmm. a little bit. Hopkins to me kind of proves my ongoing theory about it being like a method of dehumanization, addressing it in his very, I'm giving you an answer, but I'm not really giving you an answer way he does um, in his entire work saying, quote, observe these generation of witches. If they be at any time abused by being called whore, thief, etc. By anywhere they live, they are the readiest to cry and wring their hands and shed tears in abundance and run with full and right sorrowful acclamations to some justice of the peace and with many tears make their complaints. But now behold their stupidity. Nature are the elements reflection from them when they are accused for this horrible and damnable sin of witchcraft. They never alter or change their countenances nor let one tear fall." End quote. Hmm. Um, which to me kind of shows that Hopkins clearly has like very little regard for women Um, and if he's actively he's actively condemning them to be hanged by the neck till the day remember the ground does not drop out from beneath it yeah just suspend there yeah Um, he's testifying in court against them to their faces it's much better for him to paint this picture of these like stoic women inhuman women demonic women as opposed to these sobbing begging women like he's murdering that are pleading with him please don't kill me i'm innocent right yeah Um, and the same sort of way he does himself a lot of favors painting women as like these blubbering messes when someone dares call them a name you know what silly little weak creatures women are like they can't even take being called a name look at how they overreact at everything you really expect something as spineless as that to resist the devil Mm. you're so right it's just like at every turn he just like gets in a dig at women it's like they can really do no right by you at all yep madonna horror complex yeah so just having like the second that I saw that where he's just directly talking about women seeing like the word whore seeing the word thief and then talking about how they just cry so much yeah it's like I can understand how this man this man would sentence like 200 plus women to die right I can see how he would have no issue doing that he would call women females yeah (laughs) he would have a podcast podcast bro yeah uh, yep. I would hate him. Absolutely him and, fucking despise him. Him and his little buddy Stern would have a podcast together where they just talked about how females are whores. Mm-hmm. And they're they're liars. Mm-hmm. And you know, no men in the household. Who knows what the fuck they're gonna get up to? Yep. 
Why are we still dealing with this shit? Why are we still listening to these people? (laughs) God, I truly don't. I hate it. You've just given them more of a platform now. Mm -hmm. They they can't necessarily execute us in the town square, but they definitely have a wider audience. Yep. Oh, it's so gross. It is. Um, I don't particularly like Hopkins. I don't think others do either, because although he dies of most likely tuberculosis the same year he publishes his book, which I love. Love um, that. God really smacked him down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Swatted him right out of the sky. Um, he died. Him. Yes. Um, he dies August 12th, 1647. Um, it becomes the more popular story that he was accused as a witch tortured with his own methods and he was executed. Mm. Um, we all can dream. Yeah. Not. Uh, but that is the story of Hopkins and Stern. What a couple of douches. Losers. <laughs> They're perfect for each other. Yeah. <laughs> they truly did find each other. before like hinge (laughs) they truly found love in a hopeless place (laughs) 17th century england was pretty hopeless (laughs) i'm trying to imagine what like their dating profiles like tender profiles Mm. look like they're not going to be like fish dudes but i absolutely see like uh bible quotes on yeah like the mission kind of like preacher son yes very um, clean cut polo polo definitely little chinos um i think hopkins would have his like a full manifesto in his bio and so many pictures with him and his dog yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> and like intimate ones where the dog's like tongue is in his mouth or something <laughs> <laughs> like, like you know half of his personality is his dog yes mm-hmm. the other half is god god daddy god mm-hmm. he oh would call him like daddy god too mm-hmm. he's like daddy god please help these wayward females <laughs> <laughs> no i really know what they do <laughs> right i really wish that he had been tortured a female can dream <laughs> oh my god you know what they say. <laughs> I don't have anything. <laughs> I don't know what they say. <laughs> Those um, who can't do toward the country tree. torturing women. That they do say know. that. I have heard that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a bunch of creeps. That was good though. I thank you. I would like to now be regaled by you, <laughs> weirdos slash weirdos. Can do, buddy. So I liked con men in the list of ideas you gave me. Um, So today I have a story of a con man, perjurer, compulsive liar, all around douchebag, um, who fabricated a plot in 1670s London called the Popish Plot. So uh, I didn't write this down at all, but now I'm thinking of it because I just said the name of it. But um, in case it's unclear at all to any listeners um the word popish or uh papist um that was sort of like a derogatory term that protestants used for catholics in this time in england um 
So this is about 75 years after the gunpowder plot. And as we'll see, England has not really gotten over those uh, tensions between Catholics and Protestants. Um, it fades into the background at times, and then it comes up again randomly, seemingly randomly. Um, we'll talk about why it's not random. But so at the end of the gunpowder plot episode, I mentioned that the 1606 Popish Recusants Act issued by James I returned England to the Elizabethan system um, in which like recusant Catholics had to pay uh, fines for not attending um, Protestant churches. The English king who succeeded James I was his son, Charles I, who fought against the English and Scottish parliaments in the English Civil War and was executed for high treason in 1649. Um, that was when the monarchy briefly became the Commonwealth of England, ruled by the virtual dictator Oliver Cromwell. Thanks for kind of bringing that up. It was uh, a mess I didn't really want to get into. No, and I'm not really going to do it either because, yeah, I don't no. want to touch it. I was um, like, eh, if I bring up Charles, then I have to bring up other things. And I, I know. Yeah, I don't want to either, so I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, Oliver Cromwell, not, not, not a good guy. Um, so that was the interregnum. Um, upon Cromwell's death, the political crisis resulted in the restoration of the monarchy to Charles's son, Charles II, in 1660. Charles II is the king at the time of our story, and he, boy oh boy, did he like a good time. His nickname was the Merry Monarch. He fathered at least 12 illegitimate children. He also reopened all the theaters that the buzzkill Oliver Cromwell had closed. Um, I don't know if you remember that class we took with Chandler, I think, but we read all the restoration poetry and stuff. And it's just like pretty fun. Like it's boisterous. It's a bit sexual because that was Charles's sense of humor. He was just like a jolly old man. But it's funny because some of the literature and like plays and poetry were making fun of him, um, but he was like not quite smart enough to figure that out. <laughs> I may not be a smart man. <laughs> that's the end of the sentence. <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah, he may not be smart. Um, well, he was smart enough to sort of cover his own, his own ass in a way um, because he passed an act in 1661 that made it illegal to accuse the king of heresy. Um, he just kind of like gave himself a little gift. Um, He's like, I can't read, but I'm smart <laughs> enough to do that. Exactly. Um, so he probably passed this act because he most likely was a secret Catholic. Um, he was married to a Catholic princess. He seemed to believe a lot of um, Catholic type things and had those sort of sensibilities. In 1665, things in London started to get a little rough when an epidemic of Black Plague broke out. Um, plague at this time was endemic to London. Uh, I think that came up in the gunpowder plot episode where like parliament couldn't reopen because like everybody was dying in the streets. Um, so it would flare up from time to time and then die back literally because everybody who had it would be dead. Um, 
This epidemic, which came to be called the Great Plague of London, lasted for about 18 months, longer than the usual like summer plague season <laughs> would be. A this casual one. summer plague. <laughs> right. Um, this summer, I think I'll have a plague. Um, yeah. In the winter of 1664, so before the outbreak, um, an unusually bright comet had been seen over London, which caused a lot of talk um, and anxiety. This wasn't Halley's Comet. I did look it up. It was something else. I couldn't find out like what comet it was or if it ever like came back around again. Not sure. Um, but people were scared of it. Um, they thought it was a bad omen, which appears to have been true. <laughs> um, it's pretty cool, though. You can see mention of the comet in different uh, people's diaries, like Sir Isaac Newton, for example, wrote about the comet. Anyway, uh, back to the plague. Uh, sanitation in the poorer parts of London was non-existent, um, no sewage system. So just the stereotypical medieval city where waste is just like flowing in the streets most of the time. Um, air quality was also horrific, always filled with smoke from iron smelters, breweries, and other factories. Um, and of course, at this time, the cause of plague transmission was still unknown. So obviously steps weren't being taken to um, sanitize the city because they didn't know that that was something that they should be doing. The king and other nobility fled the city during the, the Great Plague, of course, um, how it goes. Like, why do you think no celebrities were hanging out in America during the pandemic? Rich people mm -hmm. will always be able to get away. Many who remained in the city died of starvation, so it wasn't just the Black Plague killing people. Um, during the peak of the plague, an estimated 7,000 Londoners died a week, and overall about a quarter of the city's population died. Uh, but don't worry, it gets worse. In February 1666, the city was declared safe enough for royalty and nobility to return. What safe enough means... <laughs> I have no fucking clue. What's the threshold? <laughs> That's like when the CDC randomly changes mask guidelines. Like, based okay. on what? Literally based on what? Yes. What are we doing? Why do we keep going back and forth? Just keep them on until everything's fine. Like, why can't we do that? I don't get it. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, we still haven't fucking figured out how to handle an epidemic. Um, so that's fun for us. So cases, <laughs> this is also relevant, cases of plague continued sporadically through the summer. No way. No way. Shocking. <laughs> Bring all the people back to the city. The disease spreads spike. again. <laughs> right. Um, so in September of that same year, tragedy struck again. Wow, that's very dramatic what I say like that. <laughs> tragedy struck yet again. Um, shortly after midnight on Sunday, September 2nd of 1666, a fire started in a bakery and spread rapidly. The most common firefighting technique of the time, I feel like we've talked about this before, but I can't remember when or why, um, but the most common firefighting technique of the time was just to blow shit up to like, <laughs> I remember that. So it doesn't like 
catch other things on fire right so it's called like creating fire breaks um um basically like a fire needs a, a full like line of stuff in its path to consume so if you blow shit up that's in the fire's path and that shit is demolished the fire can't use it for fuel so it'll die out um yeah because so we made that we made that joke about you you call the fire department instead of putting the fire in your house up they just demolish <laughs> your house to oh yeah first. this I think this was about Rome burning when <laughs> Ballard like was that. here yeah the fire you call the fire department they just blow up your fucking house <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay. like that wasn't natural causes so insurance isn't gonna cover it I'm sorry <laughs> right it's like okay I really wish you hadn't <laughs> I really wish I had not contacted you thanks so much um yeah so they were supposed to do this they were supposed to be blowing shit up to stop the fire um but the lawyer the, the lawyer the lord mayor um was sort of uh, wringing his hands about it, didn't want to do it, didn't want to commit. Um, so by the time he ordered demolitions on Sunday night, the wind had already turned the fire into a firestorm, which is where it has its own self-sustaining wind system. Um, so yeah, nobody's putting out that fire. Once it's a firestorm, it's just got to burn itself out. So the fire burned all the way into the early morning on Thursday of that week, so about four days total. An estimated 200,000 citizens were displaced from their homes, and many died of resulting hunger and exposure during the following winter. The London Gazette published a statement that the fire had been an accident, but that did not stop Londoners from blaming two main groups of people. I bet you can guess <laughs> which groups they are immigrants and Catholics. Um, native Londoners were mainly suspicious of the French and the Dutch because this was during the second Anglo-Dutch war and those were England's enemies. These immigrants were attacked in the streets, um, kind of uh, the wild west, a uh, free for all. Um, in the aftermath of the fire, a committee was established to determine its cause and this committee received a shit ton of reports of a conspiracy between Catholics, specifically Jesuits, and foreigners to destroy the city of London. Um, so I read a book by John Phillips or J.P. Kenyon, um, who is a 20th century British historian. The book was called The Popish Plot. In that book's chapter on the Great Fire, Kenyon writes, quote, a nationwide panic seemed likely, and homeless refugees poured out from London into the countryside. At Coventry, the townspeople were possessed by the idea that the Papists were about to rise and cut their throats, unquote. Fueling this anti-Catholic sentiment and propaganda were the apparent Catholic sympathies of King Charles, who had married the Catholic Catherine of Portugal. Also, Charles's brother and heir, James, the Duke of York, had converted to Catholicism, like openly. Um, and because Charles had no legitimate children, um, he had 12 illegitimate ones, but no uh, legitimate ones, um, James was his heir. So people are like, okay, if our current king isn't outright Catholic, 
at the very least our next king will be so we need to figure this out now before he becomes king um something that really also didn't help this propaganda was when charles issued the royal declaration of indulgence in 1672 which suspended all of the penal laws for Catholics and all other religious dissenters. Um, Parliament did not care for uh, this declaration, and um, it caused a lot of Protestant fear that the Catholic influence in England was growing. And in December 1677, an anonymous pamphlet was circulated which claimed that the Pope was planning to overthrow the English system of government. Um, it's at this time that I need to introduce our story's main character, an Englishman named Titus Oates. <laughs> Grade A. <laughs> Titus Oates. God, I love it. Couldn't have been better if I made it up. Um, Titus Oates was born into a middle-class family in 1649 in Rutland. Um, again, like you, I did not um, fact check this. Um, apparently it's in the East Midlands. Do I know where that is? Nope. That's none of your business. <laughs> it's between England me and the is devil. A to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I truly don't get it. Floating out the water somewhere as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right. How is it an island? It makes no fucking sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, Titus's father, Samuel, was a minister in the Church of England who later became a Baptist during the Puritan Revolution. He flip-flopped back and forth a few times, um, mainly, I presume, for self-preservation. Um, Titus studied at Cambridge but never finished his degree because he was a dumb, dumb, stupid little boy. <laughs> his own tutor called him a quote-unquote great dunce. <laughs> um, while at Cambridge, Titus earned himself a reputation as a quote-unquote canting fanatic which apparently means like he was commonly seen as a hypocrite, like falsely religious, very like preachy. Um, he also got a reputation for being gay. Apparently he had been caught engaging in homosexual acts several times. I don't know what exactly these acts were or if these accusations are true, but um, the rumors did not help his reputation. In 1670, he was ordained as a priest of the Church of England um, after having lied about earning his degree. Um, he's just girl bossing. So around 1675, when Titus was serving as a curate at All Saints Parish in Hastings, he wanted one of the school teachers jobs. He's like, okay, this guy, this guy needs to go. I need his job. So he accused this school teacher of sodomy, um, which to me screams that he, that the accusations against him, like it gives a little more credibility to those accusations. I feel like he's accusing people of something because he maybe is like involved in that thing. Like Republicans who are so obsessed with gay people. It's like, what's going on there? Um, look inward. Anyway, this accusation was proven to be false and Titus faced charges of perjury, but he escaped from jail 
um, in Hastings and fled to London, where he was soon appointed chaplain of the HMS Adventure in the Royal Navy. That's the gayest thing you could have possibly done. <laughs> it's pretty gay. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is all over the place. Um, I kind of love him for it. He sailed on the ship on the HMS Adventure to English Tangier, um, which is in modern day Morocco. But he was accused of something called buggery on that voyage. Um, buggery is an umbrella term for an unnatural sexual act against the will of God and man. Um, this could include uh, sodomy in all its forms. It could also include bestiality. We don't know what he specifically... I love the fact that those things are lumped together, though. It tells you a lot. <laughs> it really does about, like, what the, like, what priorities were, like, how they viewed sexuality back then right no it's fascinating um so the buggery act of 1533 <laughs> which is just so good it doesn't oh, sound it doesn't sound like what it means it sounds no. like it sounds like oh i'm just doing a little buggery like oh nonsense <laughs> but, half of their word sorry like English people but a lot of your words sound like nonsense words um I feel the same way about a lot of Australian slang mm -hmm. um sounds sounds like y'all made it up on the spot well I think somebody probably did right <laughs> <laughs> and then they like didn't workshop any of it <laughs> they were like no yeah it's that's just fine some of it just feels so like silly and playful and yeah. a lot of it is like super serious right like oh I'm just I'm just doing my daily buggery it's like oh that means I'm like fucking a cow yeah <laughs> yeah doesn't doesn't make sense um so the buggery act of 1533 had been passed during the reign of Henry VIII and was the country's first civil sodomy law um, before it, sodomy had been handled by ecclesiastical courts. Buggery was a capital offense, um, could get the death penalty for it, but Titus Oates was spared because of his clerical status, um, which, of course, he didn't earn, um, but they don't know that. Um, he was, however, discharged from the Royal Navy, which seems fair. <laughs> No more buggery. <laughs> no, at least not on a ship. <laughs> he can do it on land, um, not, <laughs> not at sea. Shortly after his discharge, he was arrested in London and extradited to Hastings to face trial for his perjury charge, but he escaped again and returned to London again. How? He's just doing whatever. Yes, he joined the household of the Catholic Henry Howard, um, as an Anglican chaplain for the Duke's Protestant household members. He soon lost this position. Um, I couldn't find out <laughs> oh, why. <laughs> Shocking. Um, <laughs> He's only lied about everything and like <laughs> skipped town a whole bunch. <laughs> right. I'm sure he's super trustworthy. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so I couldn't find out like why the Duke fired him, but I assume like it was either that like, 
um, like what you said, like he was caught in a lie about his qualifications or like it was, was the same mid buggery. <laughs> he was <laughs> caught mid buggery, like in every other position that he had lost. Um, so yeah, after this, uh, things got even weirder for Titus Oates. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on Ash Wednesday of 1677, he was baptized Catholic. Um, at the same time, he started publishing a series of anti-Catholic pamphlets with his buddy Israel Tong. He's just doing it all. He's living it up. Look, life is short. Why not try everything? Why not try buggery? <laughs> not try buggery. Why not be Catholic and anti-Catholic at the same time? At the same time. Why not? Just see which side wins. Um, so this guy, Israel Tong was also sort of like that chronically down on his luck type of figure, type of dude. And He's got a name to go with Titus Oates for sure. Yes, I love their two names together. I think they're so good. Because um, the, again, this is like the era of the Johns and the Thomases and the Williams. So I love the, the cool names. Yeah, so this guy, he was down on his luck like Titus, and he was also making it everybody's problem. He was a doctor of theology and had held various positions as a schoolmaster and chaplain, all very briefly because of the political struggles of the Restoration and the Great Fire. It was like, whenever he got a job, <laughs> like, um, it was outlawed suddenly, or like um, the building he was working at burned down. <laughs> Literally, it was. He has if... my luck. Yes, like reading his backstory is just like the hand of God, like trying to crush him down every time <laughs> he like got up a foothold or two. Um. So yeah, he um in Israel's mind, the Catholics, specifically the Jesuits were to blame for all of his and all of England's difficulties. Um, so he would write all these pamphlets and manifestos about how much the Catholic Church sucked. Um, these pamphlets did not make him money, um, for which he blamed King Charles's Catholic sympathies. Um, in reality, according to Kenyon's book, Tong's writing style was, quote, turgid and incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> he was also widely believed to be insane. <laughs> so that probably had a little more to do with why no one read his work. Um, they just thought he was a lunatic. Starting in 1675, Israel Tong was sponsored and housed by the anti-Catholic physician Sir Richard Barker. This guy, Barker, also sponsored Samuel Oates, Titus Oates's father. So one day in 1677, Israel Tong and Titus Oates met at Sir Richard Barker's house. Love at first sight. Kindred spirits. Um, a meeting of the minds. They're unsound minds, but um, they're meeting <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> um, the two men agreed to co-author a series of anti-Catholic propaganda pamphlets. Um, Titus's plan was to join the Catholic Church and to infiltrate the Jesuit order to do some recon. 
um, for more material for their pamphlets. So he enrolled in the Jesuit College of Saint-Omer in Artois, France. He also spent time at the Royal English College um, at Valladolid in Spain. He got into these colleges because he claimed to be fluent in Latin and to hold a doctorate of divinity. Uh, these lies were exposed because Titus would explode into these um, blasphemous rants from time to time about how he hated the Catholic Church and about how it was stupid. It's like, buddy, like, check your surroundings. Um, again, he's a great dunce, so like, <laughs> expect little from him um, in the way of critical thinking. Um, and he would also like publicly criticize the British monarchy. Um, so he was expelled after a year or so. Um, and after his expulsion, he returned to London to reunite with his best buddy. When Oates and Tong met up again, Titus told Israel that he, that while he was in France, he had heard about a planned Jesuit meeting in London. So, so he's like, yo, like you weren't kidding with all your pamphlets. You were right. The Jesuits are plotting something. It's bad news. It's a brand new gunpowder plot. We have to warn the people. Um, let's write this manuscript. Again, I don't know how exactly the conversations went, but as I was reading, I sort of got this idea in my head that Titus Oates was fully a psychopath or sociopath, and he didn't really believe any of this stuff. Like, he just wanted to cause chaos and destruction and, like, somehow, like, within all that, like, elevate himself into, like, a life of luxury. Um, and I could totally see him, like, egging on um, this guy, Tong, who really is not all there mentally, but just has, like, a lot of anger. Um, that was like the scenario in my head. I don't know whether that's true or what their dynamic really was. Um, but either way, they do write that propaganda manuscript. It's about 100 pages long. Um, and it basically just accuses the Catholic Church authorities of plotting to assassinate King Charles. It names about 100 Jesuits and their supporters, which included a bunch of Catholic noblemen. And they did the most embarrassing thing with this manuscript. It's like a cartoon comedy. Um, after they had finished writing it, when it was just hot, hot off the laser printer, um, Titus Oates folded it up nice and neat and slipped it into the wainscoting uh, in Sir Richard Barker's house. Just like pushed it through a little crack in the wall to hide it there. And this, what happened next just tells me that like Sir Richard was like the dumbest boy in school. Um, like these two are his two roommates and they spend all day and night sort of like hunched over in the breakfast nook, like pouring over their insane propaganda manifestos. And then the next day, Israel Tong is like, hey, what's up with that bulge in the wainscoting? <laughs> <laughs> Pulls out a hundred page manuscript. And like Sir Richard is like, oh my God, I can't believe this. Somebody call the cops on the Pope. <laughs> like he <laughs> fell for it. <laughs> What's the number for 911? Quick. <laughs> what did they say in Hercules? Somebody call IXII. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, he fell for it. He was like, okay, this seems legit. We have to do something about this. Um, which like, why would, why would this be in the home of an anti-Catholic doctor? Like, how could the Jesuits have gotten in there and planted it? And why would they put it there? Like, it makes no sense. It's just, I watch Mindhunter all the time, just over and over. It's one of my comfort shows. And Mm -hmm. there's one of the interviews where they're questioning this guy. And they're like, why did you write saying that the forces of evil kidnapped like this lady? Mm -hmm. Um, Like these white guys kidnapped her and they needed to pay ransom when it was you and the cops were not looking for these guys and didn't even know that this lady was missing he's like well they never would have known she was missing if i hadn't tipped him off that the forces of evil took her and they're like yeah but you would have gotten away with it if you didn't let anybody know she was missing yeah but they never would have known to look for her if i didn't tell them that the forces of evil took her i do think that some of these people are so stupid like (laughs) (laughs) like they have these big master plans yeah and it's just missing like the little the little bit of logic that it needs to get it off the ground either that or they want to be caught like they want the like taunting relationship with the police where they can be like oh if you look in this area like here's a riddle for you like they like that type of game but it sounds like that guy was just fucking dumb it literally it the whole thing was like he was using the air force stationery, and he was like pay no attention to the air force stationery. anybody <laughs> can get their hands on this oh my god he like put he writes out the whole link to the, like the amazon page for it <laughs> oh my god yeah these guys are also very dumb they definitely kind of remind me of that it's like if you put even an ounce of thought into like how the manifesto ended up into this house every bit of it falls apart right and that keeps happening where like people put an ounce of thought into something in this plot and it unravels but like because the the tensions were so high like that took a while so um what happened next was that Tong showed the manuscript to his friend Christopher Kirkby, who was a chemist and knew King Charles personally. So Kirkby showed King Charles the manuscript, like he caught up with him somewhere, like while the king was like out walking in the park. Apparently Charles was like very, he wanted to be seen as like a man of the people um, and like very friendly with the locals. So he would like take long walks out in like public parks um and Kirkby ran into him there and he was like oh my god this says that the Jesuits are trying to kill you um and Charles is like who isn't (laughs) like he does not give a shit um and so Kirkby is like well this says that if the Jesuits don't get you your wife's doctor is gonna poison you and Charles is like skirt Ooh, I knew I didn't like that guy maybe this is actually real um So Kirkby's like, thank God, let me go get my friend who found the manuscript and he'll tell you all about it. So he brings Israel Tong to meet King Charles. Um, They meet, they discuss, but it's mostly for the benefit of the king's advisors who are obligated to investigate um, 
all these threats on the king's life. Um, like Charles doesn't really believe it. Um, he refused several times to launch an investigation. And he even told his advisor to keep it all secret from the public. <clears throat> but then finally, his brother James hears about it all and convinces Charles that they have to investigate. And Charles is like, if we must. Um, and he's like, I guess people have been talking about the Catholics lately, how they're going to like rise up and like slit our throats or something. Um, maybe I should get this checked out after all. So the investigation begins and almost immediately Titus Oates's name pops up. Um, so they bring his ass in. The king's like, who's this pipsqueak? Who's this fucking dweeb? Um, like Charles does not like Titus Oates. He gives him a bad vibe. And Oates is, of course, living his best life, getting all this attention. He doesn't know what to do with it all, so he starts just making shit up. Um, he claims to be friends with the King of Spain. And Charles is like, oh, you know John? Uh, big guy with the dark hair? And Titus is like, oh, yeah, dark hair. Charles is like, gotcha, bitch. He's blonde. He's from Austria. I know you're a fucking liar. Like, that's a real conversation that they have. Um... The investigation continues, and in September, Titus Oates is summoned to testify before the Privy Council, specifically a Protestant magistrate named Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey. I mention him by name because he'll come up later. During his testimony, Oates claims that he was at a Jesuit meeting at the White Horse Tavern in London in April of that year, and that at the meeting, the others were all discussing the proper method to use to assassinate King Charles. Were they going to shoot him? Uh, were they going to get the Queen's doctor to poison him? Or, my personal favorite, were they going to arrange for the king to be stabbed by Irish ruffians? <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> like, the Irish thing in particular is so funny to me because it's so xenophobic. Um... The council also interrogates Tong, but that's mostly for everybody's entertainment, um, because again, everybody just thought he was crazy. Um, Oates, on the other hand, is interrogated for many hours over several sessions. In one session, he made 43 different accusations, including naming 541 Jesuits, which like, how do you know that many people? Um, maybe a lot of them were named John, John the Jesuit, just over and over again, 200 times. I don't know. Um, so there are a lot of, uh, coincidences or misunderstandings that actually give some credibility to Oates's story, which is complicated because like some of them should not have given credibility. Um, so while he's throwing out these wild accusations against Catholic nobility, like just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, um, something actually does stick. A Catholic nobleman that Oates accuses is investigated and is found to have actually been conspiring with the Jesuit confessor to the French King Louis XIV to overthrow the English parliament and replace it with a French one. So Oates got really lucky there because <laughs> there was and an that actual... guy is literally like, how the fuck did you? <laughs> how did he know? <laughs> right. Well, it's just he... it's a weird dude accused of buggery. He's <laughs> lying. Right. He just happens to get you. Like, just man. shot in the dark, man. <laughs> literally. 
Um, so randomly that accusation was proven true. There was evidence, there were letters, um, which made Oates look like maybe he was telling the truth. Um, another thing that made the council believe him was that he was shown five letters um, that were supposedly between um, Jesuit priests that he was being accused of forging. They're like, did you forge these letters? Um, and he was like, oh, no, that's Father Jacques handwriting. And they were like, oh, well, thank you for clearing that up. Clearly, these are not forgeries. <laughs> <laughs> like, that shouldn't have been evidence. No, this man has done nothing but lie. <laughs> right. And like, if he knew exactly whose handwriting was supposed to be <laughs> in all the letters, like, doesn't that like prove that they were forgeries? Like, how mm -hmm. would he know? Uh, no, that was <laughs> me imitating. Oh, wait. Uh... <laughs> right. Like, they're, they're kind of dumb. Um, everyone's kind of dumb and just like seeing what they want to see, I think. Um, and then something very weird happens in this series of coincidences. The Protestant magistrate, Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey, who was Oates's first interrogator, is found dead after being missing for five days. His mutilated body was found. He had been strangled and stabbed with his own sword. So the popular response was that the Protestants blamed the Catholics for this murder and were outraged when the murder wasn't immediately solved. This was in October, and this period is now called Godfrey's Autumn because of the grip that it held on London. Like, people were outraged. The lords asked the king to banish all Catholics from the city, which he did on October 30th, 1678. By that point, it had already been two weeks since Godfrey's body was found, so it essentially did nothing because the city was already in a panic. Meanwhile, Titus Oates is literally given a squad of soldiers and has now just started going around the city and rounding up the Jesuits. Like he's full vigilante with the support of the king and parliament. He went from being accused to having a posse. Yep. He has a whole posse now. Um, so yeah, the murder had been taken as proof that the plot was real and now he was just out there living his best life. Um, the murder was actually never solved. Several men were tried, convicted, and executed for it, but it was later proven that all these men were innocent. Love I love that. the fact that they just kept trying and convicting and executing people. Yep, they're like, oh, he was innocent. Mm, let's try this one. I know that we killed Steve last week. Um, I, it, doesn't, it didn't quite sit right with me. I don't think we nailed it. Uh, I don't think we try, nailed it. Let's try Jerry this week. And Jerry. if it doesn't sit right with my soul, then I don't know, Peter the week after? <laughs> right. That was really what they were doing. Like, you're joking, but like, that's really not much of a joke. So I guess it's just a mystery, although I wouldn't put it past uh, Oates or Tong to have committed that murder. That would not surprise me much. Oates is just like, hey, um, Tong, could you just, you your crazy little self, could you just go out and kill this guy? Um, right. And then suddenly I get to be a vigilante. <laughs> I mean, I could see that being how it went because I think Tong, like a lot of people sort of disregarded tong and like didn't take him seriously at all i could totally see like 
Oates giving the order for him to do that. Clearly he was smart enough that, you know, uh, Oates trusted him to like do this entire plot with him. Like if you're going to do an entire secret like assassination plot and frame like 500 people, Mm -hmm. you probably want to trust the person that you're doing this with. Ideally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think, um, I can overstate how crazy things got like parliament nearly executed a Frenchman for having gunpowder in his house. And at the last second, they realized that this guy was the King's firework maker. So like, that's why he had gunpowder and I, he like, yeah, that checks out. (laughs) Okay. I guess let him go. Like take the noose off. Um, like it was bad panic mode. Um, At this point, Oates thinks that he is fully in the clear. He is on top of the world. No one's going to catch him. So he goes ahead and accuses five more prominent lords of conspiring in this plot. King Charles thinks these accusations are ridiculous. He's like, those two guys haven't spoken to each other in 25 years, but sure, they're like huddled up together plotting against me. Okay, Um, And he's like, that guy can barely stand. He's so full of gout. (laughs) He says, (laughs) he's like, no, that, that guy, that guy could never, like he's in bed with gout, like constantly. Um, So parliament goes ahead and arrests these lords anyway. The Protestant members of parliament declare that Charles's brother James should be excluded from the royal succession Um, Because remember, he's publicly Catholic. This is the beginning of what's known as the exclusion crisis. Parliament also passes the Test Act, which forbids Catholics from becoming members of Parliament. This act was not repealed until 1829. Late. (laughs) Another neat little moment and callback is that this year, on November 5th, or Guy Fawkes Day, the anniversary of the gunpowder plot, Londoners burn effigies of the Pope instead of Guy Fawkes. That's where public sentiment is at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> the five lords accused by Oates, called in the trial records the five Popish lords, are impeached by the House of Commons in November. Of these five, the first one that they put on trial is found guilty and beheaded. And then parliamentary parliamentary closures interrupt the trials of the other four. So they end up spending a few years in the Tower of London, more on them at the end. Um, But in the meantime, hysteria continues. Charles in a meeting with Oates catches him in several outright lies and has him thrown in prison. But Parliament gets Oates out of prison and actually gives him an apartment and an allowance. Um, Meanwhile, all suspected Catholics are driven out of the city. No Catholics allowed within a 10-mile radius of London. Noblewomen carried firearms when they left their houses. Houses were searched for weapons and gunpowder. Some Catholic widows married Anglican men in hopes that they would be spared persecution. One young Catholic banker went on this like drunken rant against the king and within five days he was arrested tried and executed Oates is living it up in his fancy new apartment he's got a bearskin rug crackling fire um hot dirty wine um he starts going off the rails again in terms of details he's adding to the plot. He says that the assassins are going to shoot the king with silver bullets so that his wounds won't heal. 
Um, he says that he has heard digging near the House of Commons. Um, of course, this is shorthand that would remind everybody of the gunpowder plot and how it really wasn't that long ago. It was only 1605. Um, in the end, what finally turned public opinion against Titus Oates was simply the declarations of every single person put on trial of their own innocence. It became this parade of, you conspired against the king. No, I didn't. And you have no evidence that I did. Too bad. And then their heads were cut off. Like, seeing that over and over and over again eventually became troubling to the public. Um, they started to piece together, like, oh, there really was no evidence that that happened. All these people were executing, were in perfectly fine social standing just weeks before their executions. Like, why are we believing this guy who was kicked out of every institution he's ever joined for being like a fucking lying weirdo scumbag? <laughs> like, why is he our primary source of information? So Parliament starts coming around and refusing to convict Catholics on trial. They actually also rule that it shouldn't be considered treason for a Catholic to try to evangelize Protestants or to give money to Catholic religious orders. Seems small, but that was a very big deal for them to say. Um, a total of 22 innocent men were executed in the Popish plot. Of the original five lords, like I said before, one was executed, another died in prison, and probably probably the gouty one, um, and the other three were eventually released. King Charles made it clear that he agreed with all of this leniency and that he had never believed the plot in the first place. Titus Oates was told to leave his fancy new apartment. Um, he refused and quite embarrassingly denounced the king and the Duke of York as part of his refusal to leave. Um, so he was arrested for sedition fined 100,000 pounds, and thrown in prison. In 1685, Oates was tried on two counts of perjury. He was found guilty on both counts. There was no capital punishment for perjury, so he was removed from his clerical position, obviously. Um, never really had it in the first place. Um, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with regular whippings um, and to be pilloried once a year, funny medieval um, stock thing with your head and hands in it. Um, I think people throw like tomatoes at you. Maybe that's just in the movies. Um, I like to imagine people throwing uh, rotten produce at him. It brings me joy. Um, Titus Oates spent only three years out of his life sentence in prison. When William of Orange and Queen Mary took the throne, he was pardoned and released, but his reputation never recovered, and he died in complete obscurity in 1705, which I think might have been the worst punishment someone like him could receive, was to have nobody know his name. Israel Tong hadn't been involved too much in the later stages of the plot, so he was never tried for his involvement. He actually lived out the rest of his days in his own fancy apartment, and the state even paid for his funeral. The group most severely affected by the hysteria of the period was the Jesuits. Nine Jesuit priests were executed, and another 12 died in prison between 1678 and 1681. Three more were murdered, probably by mob violence during this time. Like I mentioned before, effects of this hysteria lingered legally until 1829, 
with the passing of the Roman Catholic Relief Act, which outlawed some of the penalties and discriminatory laws. Anti-Catholic sentiment, of course, still continued and continues today. Um, someday I'll talk about the Gordon Riots of 1780, which is another fascinating chapter in the Catholic versus Protestant saga of England. But until then, that is the story of the fabricated Popish plot. We really just had like two pairs of absolute weirdos, psychopaths who just (laughs) killed people. You've got to be a psychopath to like condemn that many people to death and be perfectly fine with it. You're just making money off of it and you're like more than happy to keep doing it. Yep. And you're just kicking your feet up in your fancy apartment, drinking wine, probably like it is not weighing on you at all. No, in fact, like he, he escalated it. Yeah. Like ramping up the lies. Yes. He never once tried to like take any of it back. No. And Hopkins and Stern were the same way. It's like, I'm going to go so far as to publish. Um, yeah. They're out there like circulating their accounts. They're out there accusing more and more people. They just have no Shame. empathy. Yeah. It's just bizarre. And I feel like when it's two people, they can just like, I'm sure there's a French word for it that I can't remember. Oh, the folia du. Yeah, madness um, shared by two. But they like, they like egg each other on. Like they play off of each other's like own, their individual tendencies, like their psychopathy or sociopathy or whatever it is, or just craziness and just escalate it even more. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Today's been fun. <laughs> yes. uh, we can't go more than like 15 <laughs> seconds without freezing. So, uh, so we're going to wrap you. this shit up. Thank you so much for listening. You know how to get in touch with us. We will see you next time. Thanks be to God. Blessed be.